Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux on April the 3rd, 2011, just after 2 p.m. And I hope you're doing very well. And uh, we do have some people on the line. And so I, uh, I guess we'll turn the show over to them uh, because Lord knows my yappy yorpin uh, is uh, filling up more than enough of your hard drive as it is. So James, if you want to just bring the first caller up, let's see if we can cut a few Gordian knots with the scintillating scimitar of philosophy. All right. Well, uh, while we're waiting for the callers to assemble their vocal cords, uh, we will uh, talk about a couple of other things. Uh, I don't know exactly how this has occurred, but it seems to be occurring <laughs> in the wonderful mayhem of internet technology. But I'm getting asked questions on Facebook. It's a new feature. I think people are aiming some questions my way. And one of them I thought was very interesting. They said, in your opinion, what's the single biggest thing we could do to end the national economic uh, emergency or catastrophe? I think it's a very good question. And my response to that would be something like this, or is, in fact, about to be something like this. The key word in that sentence is the one that is almost always taken for granted. And that's, you know, this is my tip when it comes to philosophical sleuthing. When you are looking at a question in philosophy or in economics or psychology or any of these sorts of things, when you're looking at these kinds of questions, the very important place to start is the place where you feel like you can gloss over the most. Like that's just taken for granted. That's just an assumption. But always stop because the places where we glide by, the places where we rocket over, the places where we <laughs> scoot surreptitiously by, those are the places where we're the most subject to propaganda. So I would really strongly suggest it's very important to stop. And the word that I stopped on there was national. Right? So people say, well, what's the biggest single thing that you would suggest to solve for a national economic emergency? And I compliment the person who <laughs> seems to be quoting from Atlas Shrugged, directing questions at John Galt. But it's the nation. The nation is the thing. first thing I would do is, um, is uh, question or point the finger of blame at the very concept of nations, a very concept of nations. Nations is a ghastly, horrible concept. Uh, nationhood, uh, countries are ghastly, horrible concepts. Uh, countries are artificial pockets of exploitive propaganda and rampant geographical theft. And it's not just the thieving and the <laughs> propagandizing that I object to. It is the way in which the very existence of nations warps and corrupts and degrades human-to-human -human compassion around the world. They are different. They are from India. They are from Sri Lanka. They are from Singapore. They are from some other, other place. And the common humanity that we all share is undermined and degraded. People say, well, where are you from? <laughs> People say, where are you I always get, I always think of that as like, where are you coming from, man? Where's your, where's your, where's your gig in the brain? Where's your, where's your psyche at? It's launching place. And, uh, but people say, where are you from? Well, I'm, I'm from Canada. I'm from Canada. I'm Canadian. I was born in Ireland. I grew up in England. I lived for a little while in South Africa. I've done business in China. I've visited Morocco. Uh, I worked, uh, I, I did business with companies in America. All of this stuff is pure fiction. You know, where are you from? Earth. <laughs> the little blue ball floating in space. So where you have countries 
you are inevitably going to have in-group and out-group thinking. We are better. They are worse. Right? As I talked about, I think it was in podcast six or seven. The government invests in sports because it creates an artificial sense of geographical virtue. And what really are countries other than artificial senses of geographical virtue? <laughs> the proximity of my mother's vagina to certain pieces of dirt is my perception of self-worth. And that is really not a valid place to build the foundation of a, a free and peaceful humanity in the future. Where you have this kind of us versus them, where you have this kind of differentiation, and also the ascribing of national characteristics, which I find to be pretty pretty hideous. You know, oh, Canadians, as John Stewart referred to them, the peaceful cannibals up north. <laughs> you know, oh, they're so polite, they're so nice, they're so this, they're so that. Well, I mean, that's all. Oh, people from the south are like this, or Indians are like that. I mean, just, it's very silly. It's very silly. And when you have this kind of stuff, you automatically have uh, a susceptibility to trade barriers. Like, if a job is lost to an American, that is a net loss to America. What nonsense. What nonsense. I mean, think of uh, all of the millions and millions of farming jobs that have been lost to Americans over the past century when we went from, or America went from, about 90% involvement in farming to now 2 to 3% labor force involvement in farming, millions and millions, tens of millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of jobs lost on the farm, uh, some of it shipped overseas and some of it replaced by machines. Does anyone feel that that's a huge net negative? You want to solve unemployment tomorrow? Simply ban all farm machinery and we go back to doing it by hand. Everyone recognizes that would be nonsense. But there's this idea that if a job is, is taken from America and put in India, that's a bad thing. But that wouldn't exist without countries. That whole idea of protectionism, tariffs, trade barriers, preferential treatment to local companies, buy America, buy Union. All of these things only exist because there are countries. You couldn't conceive of trade wars without countries any more than you think of a trade war between one town and another town in the same county. Couldn't conceive of them. Economic disasters are caused by in-group, out-group thinking in countries. And that kind of stuff. Or, or think of people who come from uh, other places in the world, right? So let's say somebody lives in Niagara Falls and wants to move to Buffalo, and he's a doctor. Well, guess what? He can't practice. So he can move 3,000 miles to British Columbia and still practice, but he can't move 20 miles to Buffalo and still be able to practice. Um, so the degree to which immigrants are kept out, the degree to which Im immigrant skills are underutilized, the degree to which we even use the word immigration rather than moving, all of this is driven by the very concept of countries, the very concept of nations, the very concept that a piece of dirt and a line on a fictitious map has some sort of moral quality, has some sort of collectivized value that people in Buffalo feel that they have more in common with people in Houston, Texas than they do with people a few miles away over the border. I'm not saying they should feel they have more in common with anyone geographically, but there are some things in common, like shared experience of brutal winters and so on, that also has a way of, of I think, shaping people's perceptions of the world. But this idea that there's some sort of us, and then there's some sort of them, and it's defined by historical lines. And historical lines are the edges of blood pools. This is really where countries end. One country ends and another begins, where successful brutal warlords in the past ended up running out of people to slaughter or ended up running up against other warlords who slaughtered people just as well, if not better. That's 
what the edges of countries are. It's where blood met blood and washed up against itself. That's what the edge of a country is. It's even worse than the edge of a zoo or the edge of a farm. I mean, farmers don't wage war against other farmers usually. But countries are... <laughs> you know what countries are? Countries are like the chalk outlines of a body that got shot. The outline of a body as it fell and lay on the pavement bleeding to death has an outline when the police come. And when cartographers come to map out countries, that's what they're mapping out. That's what they're mapping out. Is the outline of a crime, of a genocide, of a murder, of an encapturing, of an encapturing, of an enslavement. That's what countries are when you look at a map. They are the outlines of historical crimes from sociopathic murderers and warlords. And as long as we have countries, we're going to continue to have economic disasters because we're going to have... Like once you, once you capture and domesticate animals, they become very valuable. And that value drives the lust for political power, for control over the tax base of a population, for control over the minds of children through state and religious indoctrination, for controls over the productive value of productive citizens, which you can then take, rather than the basic mechanism of power, is you take from the productive, you keep some for yourself, and you use the remainder to bribe people, to indoctrinate everyone about how valuable and virtuous you are. That's the basic nature of power, political, religious, or other. Without countries, you can't do that. Without countries, you can't have governments. Without countries, you can't have taxes. Without countries, you can't have trade wars. You can't have tariffs. You can't have national debts without countries. Now, the flag is something that, at least in America, maybe in other countries too, is so often draped over, is draped over the coffin of a murdered man, a man murdered in war. Not over his victims, of course. They can't ever be seen. But over the man murdered in war, wearing a green costume, we drape a flag. But the flag is the wreath of humanity as a whole. Flags cover the coffins of humanity as a whole. Because as long as we're bound by these ridiculous blood borders, by these outlines of ancient crimes, we will not be able to see each other as human. We will not be able to see each other as brothers and sisters. We will not be able to see the common love and dream and desire for freedom that we all have. Because we all imagine that we're boxed up in these little crates of virtue draped with funeral flags of historical crimes. So somebody says to me, what's the one thing that you would do to end the national economic emergency, I would take the word national out of our vocabulary and then almost all emergencies, military, political, debt, counterfeit fiat currency, war, prison, enslavement, almost all of those would fall away as well. That's it for my opening speech. If anybody has any uh, questions or comments, perhaps we can uh, <laughs> unbox the uh, the voices of those in the distance. Um, I'd like to talk to you about apathy. You'd like to talk to me about apathy? Well, I'm glad you asked yourself to do that. What uh, What's your question? Well, um, I ha I'm in a really good position with uh, my life, uh, business, opportunities, and I can't find the motivation to work. I just keep distracting myself with uh, video games or 
uh, watching Netflix, and I, I don't understand why I'm doing that. I, I um, Same thing with, uh, like, I've lost a lot of weight, 70 pounds the last four months, but um, it's hit a brick wall where I'm just, I don't have the motiva- motivation to work out. Wait a second, are you telling me that, oh, you said working out, I was going to say, like, you lost 70 pounds playing video games and Netflix, because I would have thought quite the opposite might have occurred, but you're working out and, and eating well. Well, congratulations on that. That's a huge deal. Well done. Well, the reason I lost all the weight was just eating right. I started eating correctly. Right. Well, good for you. I mean, that's that's a huge deal, and, uh, you know, that is something to be enormously, enormously proud of, so congratulations on that. But uh, tell me a little bit more. You were saying that you're doing well, or you have um, positive things going on in, in your business life and so on. I just want to make sure I understand all of that before we try and dig into apathy. Um, yes, like right now, um, I, I do vacation rentals and, um, I have to go through all the contracts, put together contracts, um, put together the web page and phases for the computer programmer. And I just can't, I, I'm just not sitting down and doing the work. I, I'm, I, and I, I don't know what else to say other than that. I, uh, I don't know what the uh, resistance is. When did this start? It's been going on for the last two months. And what happened two months ago? Well, um, when he's, like, uh, I, I, when I started really working good, I had some friends, and all my friends left to go out of town to college or to start their business in uh, their doctor practice. And I, I moved out to... Uh, so I don't really know anybody out here, and maybe that's what caused it is just the loneliness set in. Yeah, no, I I, I, can, I understand that. I mean, I remember when um, I went to go and work for a mining company. I was based out of Thunder Bay, and I spent, I don't know, six or eight months in uh, in Thunder Bay. And, um, you know, how the hell do you meet people? Right? Especially if you work, I mean, I worked uh, in a warehouse uh, panning gold and stuff like that with... Uh, one other person, and um, you know, where, where the hell do you meet people when you come to a new town? Uh, it got to the point where I, I got a gym membership at the uh, gym at the university in Thunder Bay, Thunder Bay, as it's called, and uh, I remember <laughs> sitting in the sauna almost naked and chatting with another guy who I sort of enjoyed his company, and I said, hey, maybe we can grab a, a bite or a movie sometime, and <laughs> he absolutely uh, looked at me uh, eyes wide, and I realized, of course, that he thought I was uh, was hitting on him, and of course, the accent doesn't doesn't help that much, but uh, no, it's uh, it's tough to meet people uh, when you come to a new town. I mean, you can, I guess, uh, try and meet a, a woman and then try and get <laughs> into, I'm just using you to get to your friends <laughs> or something like that, but it's tough. Uh, it's tough, so I, I really do sympathize with that, uh, with the, the challenges of coming to a new place and trying to trying to meet people. They think it's just that I need to go out and meet new people and yeah, I mean, you can, you, I mean, uh, I'm not, obviously, this is stuff you can, you, you know, but I'll just sort of mention it, but, I mean, you can, uh, you know, start a philosophy group or join a philosophy group or uh, a group on economics or you can, um, uh, f- you yeah, know, photography group or, you know, anything that you're you're interested in, you can join and you can meet people that way, but that's something to remember, you know, when, when, when you get older. Uh, I'm not saying that you're, <laughs> you sound like a, a fine, upstanding young fellow, but uh, it's important to remember that you know when you get older, uh, friendships are are tricky uh, because everybody already has their established group of friends, and coming into an established group of friends is tough. So if you don't meet people through work or you don't meet people through dating, 
uh, it's tough. It's tough to meet people. And then you may have friends and then maybe they get married and they have kids and, you know, kids is like a slow atomic bomb on the atoll of your social life. So uh, it can be really tough to maintain things at least for a while, for a number of years after that. So, uh, so yeah, it is, uh, it is a tough thing. Uh, and I think that that's why God gave us a desire to fit naughty bits together with someone for our lives long. Uh, because that is the friendship, you know, with your husband or wife, and that's the friendship that could really last your whole life. Because uh, other friendships uh, are subject to, you know, as you said, people move away, uh, people change, uh, they um, they may become less appealing, uh, they may do things that we find not so great uh, morally. Because, you know, when you make your friends as a teenager, that's not your big standard, right? I mean, your big standard is, uh, are they cool enough for me to hang out with? Am I cool enough for them to hang out with? And do we like sort of somewhat similar things? But standards really change, and I think they improve when you or when you get older but i just wanted to sort of mention that's one of the reasons why i really urge people to get to to focus on and try and get into a long-term passionate lifelong hopefully love relationship with someone because i mean that is the friend that you really need to go through life with uh, it's always sort of struck me when people say like some single woman is having a kid you see this all the time in movies and tv shows some single woman's having a kid and all her friends say don't worry we'll be there for you and i just <laughs> i mean i can't help but laugh it's tragic because it's just not going to happen uh, I mean, you know, your kid wakes up three times during the night. What are you going to do? Call your friend across town and say, can you come over again? It's just not going to happen. People say they're going to be there for you, but uh, the reality is that you really need someone with you for your life uh, because uh, friendships can be a little unstable and subject to all kinds of variations. Uh, so anyway, I just sort of mentioned that, uh, A, I, I really feel for you, and I, I really understand there's things that you can do, but it's a challenge, I think, that a lot of people face. Now, um... Apathy, though, that's uh, that's interesting. So you have a job, but you are distracted from your job, and you're not doing that great a job because you find yourself... Uh, is it apathy? Is it procrastination? Do you think that you might be depressed? I mean, what what do you think is, uh, is going on? What are you avoiding uh, by distracting yourself with all these other things? Um, there is depression. Um, I don't know what I'm avoiding. I guess if I knew that, then maybe I could figure it out. But... Um... I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, uh... Well, let me ask you this then: Is this a new situation for you to be without uh, friends around, or to be to be alone? No, it's not. I've uh, I've been alone for a very long time. I mean, my parents really were uh, abusive, and and they didn't really talk to me growing up. So I was very alone at home. Um, you know, we moved around at school uh, when we moved. Uh, I went to a different school and lost my friends there. And I've probably been dealing with uh, depression since I was 15, and I'm about uh, 29 now. I'll be 30 in a couple of days. But, uh, wow. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday coming up. Okay, so you're, you're going to be 30 in a couple of days? Yeah. That may be relevant, right? Okay. Maybe that's what you're avoiding. Because, I mean, 30 is a big marker, right? I mean, 20, frankly, who gives a shit, right? 20, you're just out of your teens and your life is stretching way ahead of you like there's no nothing over the horizon but but more and more future, right? But when you're 30, you're, um, you know, hopefully a third of the way along, hopefully more than half. But by the time you're 30, if stuff is not there in your life, there's not this weird, hazy someday that you can cross your fingers and hope it's going to roll down the hill towards you. Uh, so let me let me just ask you that basic question. So you're going to be 30 in a couple of days. 
and and how's your life uh, relative to what you want relative to your ideals relative to your goals how is your life as a whole not in a good place i mean right right okay so let's let's just go down the list right so uh, if you can just do that sort by order of importance, because I'm talking to someone who's got some technical stuff. So sort by the column called gotta haves. Uh, what's uh, what's missing uh, from your life? What's the top three things that are missing from your life that are the most important? Uh, relationships with people. Um, uh, successful business. And... Um, Financial stability. I guess the, the two and three kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, no, I mean, you can be successful in business without having a lot of financial stability. Like, so if you're an entrepreneur, you may not have a lot of stability, but you may be really enjoying what you're doing. So, but I, I know what you mean. So you'd like financial stability, you'd like more business success, and you like relationships. And do you mean primarily friendship or romantic or both? Romantic and friends. If you had to choose, uh, which would you choose? Romantic. Right. Okay. I, I'm just trying to sort of figure that out, right? So um, when was the last romantic relationship you were in, if any? Sorry? When was the last romantic relationship you were in? Um, probably eight years ago. It's been a long time. Eight years? Wow. All right. Does that seem like a long time to you? I mean, i kind of leading the question there, like, Z-O-M-G, eight years? But that's a long time, right? Yeah, I, I put it off just because um, I didn't want to get romantically involved when um, I didn't have stability in my life. You know, I, I don't know. Like, I, I didn't want to have a chance of having kids and then not be able to take care of the kids. So I just kind of put things off. I think that's um, I think that you, what you believe is true, but it doesn't seem true to me. Right. Because you can have romantic relationships that don't lead to kids. You can have romantic relationships that are like flings or fun. Uh, you can have romantic relationships that you sort of say up front, listen, I'm, you know, until I get stable, I don't really want to have kids and have that conversation up front. I don't think that it's true fundamentally that you'd spend eight years not dating because you were afraid of not being able to take care of kids because there's lots of people who date in their 20s who don't, you know, go and have kids or whatever, right? Well, I was also really ver uh, very religious. Um, until about a year ago when I started listening to the show, I just realized that there is no God. But and I think that affected my decision-making. That loosens the old zipper a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Well, and also, of course, there, there, there's, there, there's a weird kind of cause and effect that can occur that when you have kids, or you, when you get married and you have kids, generally, your economic situation tends to improve. Uh, and I, I don't know all of the, I don't think anyone really knows all of the causes and effects behind that. But uh, people who have kids tend to improve their career significantly, either because they're working harder or they're perceived as having more responsibility because they have that responsibility at home or they're more conscientious or whatever it is that goes on. But there's some alchemy about having kids that helps people make more money. Uh, and again, that's, I don't, I'm not going to say I know anything about the cause and effect of that, but there does seem to be a pretty significant correlation. So. Lack of economic stability is not a reason to not have kids. I'm not saying go have kids when you have no money in the bank and no job. But there is there does seem to be an effect that when you have kids, uh, people get a lot more serious. In the, I mean, I certainly feel a lot more differently than I did. I feel a lot different than before I had uh, a daughter. So uh, so things change. Uh, so it's not, I just sort of want to point that out from a cause and effect standpoint. It may not be that clear cut. Okay, so 
which uh, do you want to focus on the romantic side of things or do you want to focus on the work things or do you want to focus on the friendship or the financial stability what's uh, what do you think would be the best one to take a swing at um the work thing the work thing okay something that you could ask me about it or well so you have a lack of motivation to do well at your job at the moment right yeah well that means i think that you don't really like your job first and foremost right i i i don't i'm not sure about that i have i mean i've always wanted my own business i I think I'm at a tipping point where if I get all this stuff done, then it starts moving forward. And um, I, I, I'm in this business with my parents as well. So I, I don't know if it's... Sorry, the business that you're in right now is with your parents? Yes, it's uh, they're financing much of it, uh, uh, some of the properties, and I'm overseeing the properties and managing. And you said that your parents were abusive, right? Yes. Are they not that way now, or? Um, they're not as verbally abusive as before, and I do avoid calls with them. Um, and physically abusive, you know, I'm already bigger than them, so that ended uh, years ago. So they're less verbally abusive, but you're saying it still occurs? Yes. It, there are times when uh, things are hectic, um, when, like, uh, there's not enough bookings. No, I understand. And now, have you talked to them about your childhood experiences and uh, your history and uh, any issues that you have, or the issues that you do have, obviously, about about how you were raised? I have, and they uh, blow it off as me blaming them. Right. Okay. So it's not like you're just blaming us so you don't have to take responsibility for your own life, that kind of stuff? Yes. Right. Right. And when did you have those conversations with them? I think the last one I had was this past November. I don't really recall too much. I've had a few of them with my mother. And how do you experience that they've, if I can use the phrase, blown you off about some significant complaints you have about your history with them? How do I feel about it? Yeah. Um, unimportant or... Um, sad, irrelevant. Right. Right. Um, if I can, I mean, the, the word that popped into my mind when you were saying unimportant, sad, and irrelevant is apathetic. Like you feel apathetic. I mean, I don't want to, you know, put words into your mouth, but tell me if that fits at all. Uh, that, that that looks like it goes hand in hand. I mean, I, I, I they don't care about me, so I don't care about my life. Well, that's not the causal effect, right? There are millions of people, billions of people in the world who don't give a rat's ass about me, but I still care about my life, right? But isn't it different if it comes from parents, I guess, if they've never... Well, it is, yeah. Look, I, I agree with you, it is different, but I would say that it's not specific to parents. If you have people in your life who think that you are not worth very much, it's very hard to have self-esteem. Right? Yeah. If, you, if your parents, I mean, I, I don't know, but if your parents do think that you're unimportant, it's going to be very hard if you're involved in them, as particularly in something as intricate and involved as a business, 
If your parents think that you're unimportant, it's going to be very hard for you to feel that you're important and worthy if you're around people, especially with this kind of history, who think that you're unimportant. Does that make any sense? Run that by me again? Well, let's say I'm dating a woman who thinks I'm ugly. Right, and she's constantly complaining that, you know, my head's too big and I'm too bald, uh, or whatever, right? And she thinks I'm ugly. How easy is it going to be for me to feel attractive? Very difficult. Yeah, I would say kind of impossible. Kind of impossible, right? So if you have people in your life to whom you are your genuine needs and honest experience and preferences are not important, how easy is it going to be for you to feel that you're important? I'm not. Right. So apathy, I believe, like 90% of the time, apathy is kind of like an infection from others. Does that make any sense? I'm intrigued. I, I, I don't know if I put it together yet. Look, it's just, it's just my theory, right? It's just idiot amateur error on the internet. But I genuinely believe that our identity, our sense of ourself, right? I've talked about something in the past called a ecosystem, which is like ourselves, that we don't just have one identity, we have a bunch of different selves. But I think it's much wider than that. I think that we actually have, <laughs> to use a ridiculous phrase, but I think it's helpful. It's called a ecosystem. It's we, right? So my identity is composed of you know, a self or selves that I have, a number of different selves that I have, you know, a self-critical self, a self-praising self, a happy self, a self that gets down on myself, a, oh, you know, a whole variety. And they come from my identity itself and also come from people that were around me when I was a kid, my parents and a priest or two, a teacher or two, those kinds of things, or my siblings or my brother. And those are the identities that I have within myself. But I also have my wife's view of me and her view of me has multiplicities as well because she relates to my multiplicities and I, my daughter has a view of me as well and my friends have views of me as well and so what I call my identity is a very complex interweaving of my identity of other people's identities and all the relationships that all these identities have with each other and so if I have people around me who think that I'm worthless, who think that I'm unimportant, who think that I'm useless, who think that I'm crap, who think that I'm boring, who think that I'm unattractive, I'm, I'm not saying you've said all of this, but if I have people around like that, that is an invasion like a virus into my identity. And if I continue to hang around people like that, at some level, I have to agree with them. Does that make any sense? And this is why we have to be so careful about the people we have in our lives. You know, they always say, yeah, be very careful who you have sex with and wear a condom. And when you have sex with someone, you're having sex with all the partners they had in the past. And I mean, that's true, right? But I believe that it's our relationships that we have to get, guard even more fiercely than our penises and vaginas and <laughs> all other kinds of goodies. Because the people who are around us they become us. We internalize them. Their opinions of us become indistinguishable from our opinions of us. Does that make any sense? 
So if you have people in your life who think that you're not worth very much and who are uninterested in your genuine experiences and all other kinds of things, I don't want to talk too much about it because you've just given a few hints, but you know what the answer is to all of this. Then those people are going to come into your head, they are going to take up residence, and they are going to start repeating themselves, and they're going to start like, they're like an infection. I mean, everybody's an infection. It can be a good infection or a bad infection, right? But everybody that we have a relationship with takes up residence in our heads and starts talking to us. Everybody. There's no exceptions to that, I believe. And so you have to be really careful who you let in your head. How do I move the bad ones out? I mean, once I've separated the uh, contacts, I just... Well, look, yeah, my therapy, I think, is, is very important. And, and you can't fundamentally eliminate uh, things. <laughs> People are like herpes. You can control the outbreaks, but you can't eliminate them, at least in my opinion. But... Um, no, I, I this is this is my my opinion, right? So this is no nobody can tell you what to do, and this is just my my opinion. But if I were you, uh, I would go back and talk to my parents some more. I know it's tough. I know it's scary. I know it's hard. But you're kind of in the null zone. I think you need to find a way to break through with your parents. And if you can't break through with your parents, then you have other options. But uh, I would get get a hold of a therapist. I would talk to a therapist, and I would say this has been my experience from when I was a kid. This has been my experience of trying to talk to them as adults. I want to try and talk to them again, but I need some help. I need some support so that I could really do my very, very best to try and break through and have a more healthy and beneficial relationship with my parents. And, you know, it's always my hope that that works. If it doesn't, you have other options, which you're fully aware of, of course, which everybody's fully aware of, that adult relationships are purely voluntary. But you're kind of in a null zone because you had this talk with your parents and they kind of blew you off and you're still doing the same thing like that didn't happen. Well... What that's telling yourself is, I can act on my values, and if I don't get what I reasonably deserve, it doesn't matter. Well, that is going to make you apathetic, because it's going to feel like, well, so what? What, what does it matter what I do? If, if I talk to my parents and they blow me off, and then I just keep going on like nothing happened, well, of course you're going to feel apathetic, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So don't, uh, you know, don't stay in the null zone. I mean, that's where people want us to go sometimes, but, you know, keep, keep talking, keep, keep the conversation open, keep talking about what's important to you with people. Because what's going to happen is we either drive our life consciously or life drives us unconsciously, which can be quite risky because the end, like what's going to happen if you can't solve this apathy, what's going to happen to your career, your job, your, what's going to happen? Me all over. Yeah. Yeah. So don't, don't let that happen to you. Right. If you're destined not to end up so so-called destined not to end up working with your parents, at least make that a choice. Don't make that, don't, don't give that turn. Don't turn that over to, to the Netflix server to solve for you. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would suggest that until you solve this, it's going to be tough to get a romantic relationship going. I think you're just not going to be available. I think emotionally. I agree. So that's, you know, my major <laughs> few scraps of idiot wisdom. That's that's all I really had to say. Is there anything else that you wanted to add uh, to that? No, thank you. I mean, it gives me a lot to think about and look over. Uh, so. Yeah. And look, 30 can be a lot of fun. 30, your 30s can be great. I, I had a, a ball in my 30s. I'm having even more of a ball in my 40s. But <laughs> I had a great time in my 30s. It doesn't have to be a decade 
to dread. It can be a lot of fun, but it sounds like you've got a bit of talking to do with people in your life, I think, to really earn that kind of propulsion. Thank you for your time. Uh, thanks very much, man. Great, great topic. Great, great, uh, great conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, Jimmy Jumbo James, Orama Bot. Do we have uh, Do we have somebody else online? Oh, hi. Um, yeah, uh, from uh, like uh, yeah, uh, England school. Yeah, no, I think I got that from the accent. What can I do for you, my friend? <laughs> well, I, I could have put uh, on an accent, but it would have sounded weird, I think. Um, yeah, um, I uh, messaged you messaged you before, but I think there was, um, I think you got half the me meaning of what I said. I wasn't going to sort of call uh, the show uh, with with that particular message. I just. I... Oh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, what's uh, what's in your mind? Oh well, what's on my mind? Um, yeah, um, yeah. Basically, I mean, it ties into what um, I, di I didn't hear the full conversation uh, with the last caller, but um, sort of ties in with uh, definitely to do with uh, parents and uh, sort of uh, a few realizations about um, uh, the way I was raised. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been reading. Uh, sort of at the shrugged and having a few realizations from that and um it's pretty it's pretty hard to sort of uh to uh to process that and have uh i think i'm still waiting to have that kind of emotional connection and and realize a few things but um um yeah just in, in terms of that stuff really just in uh I, i'm not sure like uh, what what I can and can't say really um, in terms of what I've realised. Well, that's up to you. I'm I'm happy to hear whatever is on your mind. Um. Well, in in terms of the sort of my parents' behaviour towards me, it was very um. Uh, very abusive, but sort of different different sort of type types of abuse in terms of uh, neglect and. And neglect from one side and um sort of uh, uh like violence and uh, from 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 another um i'm so sorry to hear that i'm so so sorry to hear that yeah and uh it kind of uh i mean i've noticed that quite a lot of uh, effects from it and stuff i've one thing it's very hard to uh, to uh, to uh, to think about stuff because i was kind of made not to think if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, no, it does. Oh. It really does. Because um, uh, one thing my dad hated was me uh, questioning him. Um, well, yeah, yeah. It's kind of he had an expression. If if I say jump, you ask how high. Uh, he wouldn't be a military man by chance, would he? Uh, well, funny enough, yeah. He when he was younger, he did join the RAF, but he didn't stay for long. Um, yeah, no. Um, um, I was just uh, saying, like my my, my grandparents uh, met um, and married because of war. They wouldn't have uh, met. They were from different ends of the country, so they wouldn't have met anyway. And so my dad uh, joined the RAF, I think, to kind of uh, impress uh, his mother or something. And but um, I think uh, my, I mean, I haven't spoken to my dad for uh, nine years now. Um, and I, I mean, uh, I, was, I was kind of, I was kind of a bit uh, nervous in ringing up tonight because uh, I mean, you're kind of like uh, 
this uh, seen as this uh, certainly amongst me and my friends and I was introduced uh, to your uh, videos uh, to my friend, friends, but as this kind of obviously sort of older authority figure, so I was kind of really nervous and wondering um, my motives for calling and stuff. But I think um, that aside, um, I think the subject uh, is quite difficult. Um, I think in terms of uh, physically, I kind of I get that feeling like I'm going to get hit if I if I if kind of go against my dad or my family and stuff um but i think one of the biggest uh, realizations i had in terms of how they treated me um and in terms of evidence as well actually um you know um was that they wanted to uh, uh destroy me um which sounds like really bold like really like a big statement it's it kind of sounds like um when you say someone arresting you is kidnapping you kind of thing <laughs> No, listen. Uh, I uh, uh, I understand what that means. Uh, I really do, and I'll just I'll just reinforce that at least from from my perspective that thought and judgment and evaluation and all those kinds of things that is called having an identity. That is called having a self. And uh, I know when I was a kid, uh, my I, my mom would say, you know, I, I told you to do X or I told you to do Y or whatever. And sometimes these things would be contradictory or sometimes they wouldn't make sense or whatever. And I would always say the same thing. Well, but I thought you said this or I thought that. And she would always snap back, well, don't think, right? That would be her, her big statement, right? Right. And to me, when somebody says don't think, all I hear is don't be, don't exist, don't have an identity, don't have a soul, don't have a mind, don't have a brain, don't exist. And so if you were not allowed to question or criticize then to me that is a very powerful assault upon identity, a very powerful assault, a very negative and destructive assault upon the very concept of, of being. Because if you're not allowed to think, if you're not allowed to question, if you're not allowed to oppose people in authority, then who are you? Who are you? I mean, what, what thoughts are in your head other than fear and compliance and resentment? Um. Yeah, and I, I certainly think um, in terms of because um, I mean I could uh, I could say oh well I'm just I'm just saying that or maybe I interpreted things different but when that when I kind of had that realization I, I was kind of looking at experiences that I'd been through I used to be on uh, drugs and alcohol and and it was when I was on drugs and alcohol um, that my family wanted to engage with me the most um, when I got off all that. Well, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, like, when I sort of got off uh, drugs and alcohol and did productive things with my life, really kind of uh, new, sort of exciting things. Um, my uh, my mom didn't wasn't really interested. My my family weren't really interested, and so there was so there was looking at that. So I thought, well, that's weird how they're showing an interest when I'm at this really bad level. There was like times where I kind of did feel quite uh, quite down. And uh, my mum would say things like, don't, don't, you know, so I'd say I'm feeling really, you know, I've just moved to Bristol. I feel, you know, this strange city from a small town. I feel really lonely and isolated and depressed. And she'd say things like, um, oh, don't say that. It's making me upset and that kind of thing. And uh, and also, um, and I think the biggest realization was when my dad said to me, uh, um, my life would have been easier if you hadn't been born kind of thing. So that was oh, kind of like... Yeah, yeah. Oh no, he's 
I could tell you stories about my dad, and uh, it, you just like is another person. It wasn't so much the physical stuff. Um, it, that was more humiliating, kind of. Yeah. But it was kind of as, it, as opposed stuff, to. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember my mom. I remember my mom's statements or 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 rages. I I remember the words like forty years later. I can remember the words. I remember the intonation. I remember where she was in the room when she would say the most destructive things that she would say about, you know, wishing we weren't there and wishing she'd never had kids and wishing that we didn't exist and all that. I mean, that stuff, it's like a brand right down into the very base of your brain because it tells you very, very clearly that you better not be too demanding, that you better not be too oppositional, that you better not cause too much trouble, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having having this realization, it's like, right, okay, so they want to de destroy me and stuff. I mean, I've already kind of... Um, uh, cut off contact with my family um really um I, I i don't speak with my brothers i think that's unfortunate because i think my brothers were just as much victims as i was but um because i was the oldest i was very much uh vilified um i was used as the scapegoat for my mum's neglectful i mean we're talking uh uh moldy food in the cupboards not feeding us properly uh sending my brother to school with his pajamas still on you know just uh oh my and but but i i think i know why i was kind of vilified i mean i was i was thrown out of home at, uh, at 14 my mom said she couldn't handle me and i think the difference between me and my brothers was i questioned things and she both my parents had me very young and i think when you have a kid it kind of it makes you have to face reality. You have to face reality uh, in order for that child to survive. And that child's not had a choice uh, and can't look after itself, you know. Um, so you have to kind of face reality and face up to responsibility. And I think them doing that made them realize. And I'm not making excuses for my mom or my dad, but particularly my mom had. No, 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 look, I mean, uh, reasons are not the same as excuses. I, I completely agree with you. Saying that, that uh, smoking causes cancer... Uh, is is a reason. It's not an excuse for smoking. It doesn't mean that everyone who smokes is no longer responsible for their their cancer. But a reason's uh, causality is not an excuse. So I I can, I'm with you there. I think examining these kinds of things is very very important. Yeah, and, and yeah, and they didn't sort of uh, generate out of nowhere. But um, I, I think in terms of uh, my mum's experience, I mean that's quite horrific to think about because she's been through. Uh, and it, yeah, this isn't confirmed. I mean. There are some abuses I'm not, I haven't got confirmation on just in terms of behavior and odd responses and stuff. But one thing I do know. Sorry, I just, if you just don't go into detail about your mom because she's not part of this conversation, but I think we can all, all understand. Uh, yeah, I want it to be as vague yeah. as possible. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's fine. I, th I think it's, it's completely fair to say that, I mean, my mom certainly went through just things that I would have a tough time even imagining and growing up in the war. And your mom went through, through things that were terrible. But that's not quite the same as a cause, right? Because there are people who go through terrible things who become more humane as a result, right? So it's like the old story about twins of an alcoholic dad, right? And one twin says, well, my dad was a drinker and that's why I'm a drinker. And the other twin says, well, my dad was a drinker. That's why I never touch alcohol. Uh, so, right, there are causes, but they're not a direct line to effects, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, we still have a choice. Granted, we, we've got a lot of uh, uh, baggage to carry, but 
yes. <laughs> well, we, you know, I'm sorry, just to, just to make the argument a bit more nuanced, I don't think we always have a choice. I think that, uh, you know, free will seems to be something as like a muscle you exercise. And if you don't exercise it for long enough, then it's like you don't have it. Uh, so the problem is, of course, that when we reach the age of reason, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten, or 11 or whatever, uh, our parents, I mean, your parents sound younger, but our parents are often in their mid-30s or whatever, and then we didn't know them when they were younger and had more choices. And we look at them now, if they're dysfunctional, then they kind of seem like robots, like they just react and they don't think and they don't evaluate and they, they can't seem to make better choices. And we say, well, gosh, they must, you know, that's, that's the way they are. But they're probably, I would argue that there was a time when they were younger, but they had more choices uh, and more capacity for change. And uh, the fact that we see them when, later on, there can be a bit of an illusion about how much choice they did have. Mm. Uh, could, could you like, explain that a bit? Well, okay, so let's say that my, uh, my dad, uh, I think he smoked pipes, and he used to smoke a long pipe because he said his joke was that my doctor told me to stay away from tobacco, so he smoked a very long pipe. Ha, 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 he's a funny guy. But um, uh, So let's say my, let's say my dad was a, was a heavy pipe smoker. Well, if he's a heavy pipe smoker, he's not likely to be a marathon runner. Right. Because, you know, whatever, he's got smoke all over his body. Now, when he was first starting to be a pipe smoker, when he was 20, he had a choice about whether to either start smoking pipes or just after he'd started to stop. Now, by the time I knew him when he was in his 40s, uh, you know, he'd been smoking pipes and I'm making most of this up. I know he smoked a pipe, but I don't know to what extent or what degree, but he'd been smoking pipes for like 20 years. And so he was probably addicted and that had become really ingrained behavior. So I'd say, well, he's a pipe smoker. He has to smoke pipes. And therefore, he can't run a marathon. But that's because he'd now been smoking for, four, for 20 years. Whereas back in the day, when he was 18 or 19 or 20 and first started smoking pipes, he had a lot more choice. But now he'd been smoking pipes for 20 years. He has a lot less choice. But I want to always remember that there was more choice when he was younger. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it would be very hard for... <laughs> I think for that's that's what I mean. I think that's where my mum my mum would say things uh, in terms of my experience of her. She would say things to me like, um, uh, "I'm having you're making me have a nervous breakdown and stuff by me questioning her." So I think she'd gotten to a, a level where she denied so much, um, or, or just didn't even want to think about uh, her uh, her life. Maybe that to face up to uh, raising me would mean or to face up to any abuses. I mean, because she made the choice to get with my dad and, you know. Yeah, and stay. Like, I'll give you a, just a tiny example, right? So I got an email from a woman the other day who um, was saying that she has a kid who's about 18 months, and she, she realized she got so angry at him that he, she was yelling at him and about to shake him because he was not doing something that she wanted. And she wrote to me, and she was like, oh, my God. You know, I started listening to your philosophical parenting series, and I was just horrified at what I was doing. You know, do you have any advice? And, you know, I mean, what do I know, right? But I just said, you know, go see a therapist, figure out what in your history is making you this this angry. For heaven's sakes, don't don't ever touch your child in anger and don't raise your voice. Somehow people think that raising your voice is so much better than hitting, but uh, I don't think that it is. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, last I'd heard, she was going to therapy. She was making great strides forward. She had not aggressed against her child since. And, right, so, so every parent has this thing where they first hit their child or they first yell at their child or they first see that fear in their child's eyes. I think every parent then has a crossroad. They have a choice. Now, if they choose the, the dark path, right, if they choose the dark side and they just keep hitting and yelling, then they get all these justifications for it and their choice diminishes uh, over time. But I believe that except for genuinely insane parents, which of course very, very few, uh, parents, uh, yeah, they hit their kid. There's a moment of horror. No matter how jaded or cynical or corrupt they are, there's a moment of horror. I know my mom had it. 
there's this moment of, oh my God, what have I just done? And that's the, that's the choice. That's where the choice shows up. And uh, we don't remember that because we were probably too young when it happened. But there is a real moment of choice. And everything that happens after that is I genuinely believe the result of what happens in that moment almost always. Um, and I think uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, how that's affected me now, it's kind of um, made me sort of realize, okay, so they wanted that because I have kind of, I get very... Um, I get very stressed about stuff and uh, and I get two modes of thinking either to uh, be self-destructive in, in, internally or externally um, and uh, uh, and I kind of know where that comes from now so it's kind of like trying to recapture that kind of will to want to uh, uh, be happy to uh, to do something to be productive because you know you do something productive and then but then this kind of voice of self-doubt comes in you're like oh what am i doing this kind of thing um and it's kind of thinking did you know did i have it what is that you know and and i think you know looking at kids and stuff and you see that curiosity that they have so it's there it's, it's inherent within us i, I would imagine and, uh, guess yeah but uh but uh look i mean i think i think the reality is like uh, i'm no doctor no psychologist but you might want to check out um the video series called the bomb in the brain that i did uh, it's fdrurl.com forward slash yeah yeah right. there, there i've seen that yeah yeah yeah, yeah the, so there are brain changes that occur as a result of abuse that, that that can't be undone i mean you can you can fix them the brain retains a lot of plasticity throughout age but uh, but you can't be a person who was never abused. That's not ever going to happen. So when you see kids who are sort of happy and healthy and and positive, and I see this every day with my daughter, um, uh, you know, that's that I can't, I can't ever go back and have that. I can't ever be that person. Uh, I can't ever be the person who didn't go through uh, many many years of terrible abuse. I just I can't. Uh, and particularly, you know, if you're an adult and it happens, like I don't know, you're unjustly imprisoned or prisoner of war or something. I mean, that's rough enough, but at least your brain is formed. At least you, you have an adult's brain and you have an adult's capacity to understand things. But the damage that is done to children during the time of brain formation, then that can occur before the child is even born. Uh, the, 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 this is um, this permanent. Uh, it's permanent and it's developmental. And that doesn't mean that it's um, unhealable, it, but, but it, it means that even if you heal it, right, you, know, you, you can break your arm and then you can even end up stronger. Then before your arm is broken, if you do the rehab and, and all of that, but you can never be somebody who never broke his arm. So, shit. Oh, hey, sorry. Are, you, are we back? Hi. Hi. Yeah, sorry. I just uh, think I got uh, I got booted from the call, but but I'm back. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, I, yeah, I think what you're saying makes sense, um, and certainly I think in terms of how I learn things, um, I get very frustrated. Um, and I think uh, I had a lot of sort of problems in school because a lot of it was kind of like, oh, you, uh, you're the problem as opposed to looking at what the source of the problem was. And I think that I, I, I could I could go into a long history of like what my school was like, but that's that's another story. But um, I think um, in terms of how it's affected me now, I think there's a part of me that still very much looks for. Uh, uh, chaos and aggression and relies upon chaos and aggression. Um, right. Well, you're used to 
right? So my argument would be that you're used to managing danger and aggression, that that's what you grew up with, that that was the only sense of control and power that you had was to manage, to deal with, uh, with, uh, with control, uh, to control aggression, to manage aggression. And so uh, it's sort of like a man who's been walking against a strong wind for a long time. When the wind stops, he falls down, right? And so uh, there may be a part of you that is is so used to managing aggression that if it ain't there, you got to make it, right? you got to invent it. If you're not used to managing stress and difficulty, and uh, that may have something to do with the drug use and the alcohol use and so on. It's like, well, uh, I'm so used to managing chaos, I'm so used to managing dysfunction, that if it's not around me, uh, I need to go generate it because that's all I know. And that's that's the greatest tragedy is this kind of addiction that we have to managing this kind of stress. Uh, it's really hard to let go of that. And, and yeah, and I think in terms of uh, how and the stuff I'm learning now, particularly about uh, uh, stuff that you've mentioned and I've mentioned uh, uh, that I mentioned with my friends in, in terms of uh, the government and 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 schools and because it all it, it all t- ties in um, to uh, my so when I'm talking to someone else who may not who may have a different opinion from me um, and I've not heard the arguments I, I kind of um, I kind of I'm not very good with uh, sort of uh, arguing or disagreements and, and that shit will come back and sort of all my th- thoughts will kind of, and it's very frustrating. And then you, maybe like, you kick yourself for saying, oh, I should have done that better or later I should have done this. Oh, yeah, later, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Listen, my friend, it is. I think it's very, very important that if you're dealing with this kind of history and you're working through this, do not put on the Cape Crusader of philosophical Superman right now. Uh, because you've got enough of your own shit to deal with and to calm down and to soothe uh, before you go out uh, talking to people about red pill and blue pill. Does that does that make any sense? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, like uh, you're flying in a plane and they lose pressure, the, the oxygen masks come down. It's like you put it over your own face before you put it on other people's, right? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so don't, don't, don't go out and be a Cape Crusader, man. I mean, it's really, it's not, it's not time. It's not, not time. Uh, because that's you're just going to replace one set of stressors for another. And uh, I would really love the idea of you living kind of stress-free for at least a couple of years. Uh, and uh, that that would be my very strong suggestion. Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I don't know what else. How am I doing for an asshole authority figure? Am I doing okay? <laughs> oh, I didn't say asshole. Uh, no, 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 I know. But I mean, that's part of you is, right? Because, you know, that's what you're used to. But but no, I mean, I think it's really like take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, right? I mean, if you're working on healing a broken arm, don't go out and throw throw a cricket ball around, right? See, I'm localizing my metaphors here, right? But I mean, you, you need you need to get yourself straight. You need to get yourself calm. You need to get yourself right. The The long haul of changing the world is a really difficult thing to do. And you can really only start it from a position of relative calm and security. I would, you know, get get the love of your life into your life. Uh, get your career straightened. Get your finances sorted. Get yourself calm. Get yourself peaceful. Get yourself into a good place. And then see if you want to. And nobody's ob- Just because you have the truth doesn't mean that you're obligated to go and help people. Because the vast majority of people uh, don't want the truth. And they will piss <laughs> piss all over you for trying to Well, get- uh- I think you got my message the other day about an experience. I won't mention it, but um, yeah, sort of trying to uh, pick a time and a place to speak to someone when you see something going on and getting a certain reaction. It's 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 difficult. It's difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, look, if if you see, if yeah, if you see someone being hurt or abused, you're. I mean, I think it's good if you can. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, not obligated. I mean, I get letters from people who like, you know, they're subscribing for $10 a month and they say, listen, I'm, I'm broke. I can't do it. And I'm like, yeah, of course. I mean, geez, ditch the philosophy podcast and buy food for heaven's sakes. Right? <laughs> uh, don't don't put yourself in any kind of risk to keep a podcast going. I mean, the podcast will survive. But yeah, everybody needs to take care of themselves first and foremost, because change is going to come not from you debating with people, not from you arguing with people, not from you winning arguments with people. My friend, the change is going to come from you having a happy, wonderful life. The change is going to come from you raising children with peace and with, with kindness and with virtue and with generosity. Peace is going to come from you falling in love with the right woman and, uh, and her falling in love with you for all the right reasons and having a wonderful and supportive and happy life. That is where change is going to come organically, from within the family, from within your life, from within your heart. It is not going to come because you, uh, you, you uh, browbeat somebody down in, in, with logic and evidence. I'm not, there's times, and I, I love a good debate, there's times where I think it's great, but I don't make the mistake of thinking that I'm obligated to do it or that it's going to do a damn thing other than maybe get a few people interested at some point. And remember, of course, it's my job and it's other people's hobby, right? So, uh, you know, that's an important thing. Uh, to to remember, uh, you know, just because I can do okay at karaoke doesn't mean I'm going to open at Massey Hall. Uh, it's okay to keep those things as a hobby, but the most important thing is to not let philosophy be, don't use philosophy as a way of re-experiencing stress and tension from when you were a kid. That, that's not what philosophy is for. Philosophy is to bring you happiness and peace and serenity and security in your life. And if you find that you take pleasure and, and, and happiness and can do it in a relatively stress-free way to help the world, fantastic. But that is completely optional, and that comes long after, in my opinion, in my very strong opinion, uh, that comes long after you have your life right, that your heart is open, that your life is filled with love and butterflies and, <laughs> and bees and birds and all that kind of stuff. Uh, then, uh, then you'll be showing people what happiness and virtue looks like rather than telling them and uh, most people in this world learn only by seeing, not by hearing. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. No. I, I mean, that's that's great. Um, I'm, uh, so I've got a lot of uh, food for thought there. And uh, apologies. And listen, I, I hate to cut you short, but I want to make sure if you have anything else, let's deal with that because I want to make sure we have a couple other callers. No, I just I just I just want to say quickly, apologies uh, to the American listeners if they didn't understand my accent. So. Uh, no, it's pretty good. It's not like uh, it's not like you're uh, calling from Glasgow or something. In which case, we just have to slow you down and play it backwards so that people could hear it more comprehensibly. But no, that's that's great, Steph. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, yeah. Thanks so much, man. Great, great topics. I'm so sorry to hear about your history. Of course, I hope that you'll talk to a therapist if and when you can. And uh, congratulations on this journey that you're on. It is so incredibly heartwarming for me. I mean, not that you, you shouldn't live your life to be heartwarming to me, but it is anyway. Uh, it's incredibly heartwarming to me that people are so interested and, and finding such value in, in self-knowledge. And you know, people bring up family stuff a lot here, and some people like that, and some people don't. But the reality is that family is our first experience of philosophy. Family is our first experience of philosophy, and it is the most powerful experience of philosophy that most of us will ever have. So when you're upset and your mother says, I don't want you to talk about this because it's making me upset, well, that's a philosophical argument. That is a moral argument. That is an argument from universals. That is subject to UPB, a universally preferable behavior. That is subject to an evaluation of its ethical content because that is a moral statement. And so um, and we don't have to analyze it now, but, but I'm just saying that most of what we hear from parents, certainly most of what we hear from teachers and from priests when it comes to morality, it's all ethicals, all a moral argument. We are entirely surrounded by moral, ethical, and philosophical arguments when we're growing up. So the fact that people bring up 
uh, family stuff and all that, I think that's perfectly appropriate to a show about philosophy because that's where we hear our first philosophy, right? So when your dad says, when you say jump, when I say jump, you say how high. That is a philosophical argument about the relationship between the powerless and the powerful. That is a philosophical argument about the relationship between might makes right versus universal virtue. That is a philosophical argument about authority. That is a philosophical argument about morality and its place and its applicability. That is a moral argument about thought as offensive to power. That is a philosophical argument. And the fact that it sticks with you is because of that philosophical content. The stuff that really lasts with us, the stuff that really sticks with us is the stuff with deep moral content and it needs to be evaluated. So I'm very happy when people talk about these kinds of topics because it is the most powerful and primordial form of philosophy that we all experience is that which we get when we're very young. So thanks again very much. If we wanted to move on to another caller, James, we have some time, I do believe. Um, yeah, I've had an issue with grandiosity for some time, not as a permanent way of thinking, but whenever I'm feeling a bit low or whenever there's some distraction, what rephrase, I sometimes use it as a distraction from when I feel low or not good enough in some way. And um, I, in those moments, I just go into this sort of fantasy world where I see all these designs and impressive things and that kind of thing. But uh, it's uh, it. I, I looked up what narcissism was two years ago, and since then I've been kind of paranoid about this habit. <laughs> so now you need to look up paranoia, narcissism, and grandiosity. Good, we're getting quite a collection going here. Quite a quite a grab bag, you know. Pretty much, you'll just you open up the, the uh, DSM four, I guess soon to be DSM five, and just say, "Yep, that's pretty much me." But sorry, go on. Oh, God, yeah, seriously, that uh, reading about personality disorders, every time I read anything, I think I have it, but uh, it's usually not the case. But um, uh, if I see a, if I see a, a tend like a, a thing that I've done once or twice in terms of like a behavior, I assume that it's a, a full-on tendency. But in, in any case, um, yeah, uh, I'm wondering what I can do to um, – basically lessen the use of grandiosity, but still take advantage of some of the cool designs and stuff that I see in that mental state. Right. So how can I be ambitious without being grandiose? Is that right? Oh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> now, uh, first of all, I, I would question the wisdom of calling a guy who's trying to run the biggest and most powerful philosophy conversation the world has ever seen to ask for advice on grandiosity. I just, you know, that, so take everything that I'm going to say with a huge grain of salt. It's like sure. they're calling me up to ask me about, uh, you know, should I part my hair on the left or the right? It's like, dude, I'm so past that question. But um, but no, I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, just the usual caveats that we're just using all of these words in strictly amateur ways. There's no, of course, professional diagnosis going on here. But but grandiosity, I think, is a really, really fascinating, uh, a fascinating uh, question or issue because there are states of mind that are elevated and positive, but are threatening to other people because of those that very elevation and positivity, right? Mm. And so I wonder the degree to which ambition, which I think people recognize as a good thing uh, in and of itself, like, I mean, as long as it's not like cold-blooded, ruthless, win-lose, stab your opponent kind of, right? So I think ambition is generally considered a good thing. But I wonder if, I always wonder if the negative aspects of ambition, which obviously are termed, you know, grandiosity or whatever, if they're not invented by people who are threatened by somebody else's ambition. Does that sort of make any sense? 
That definitely does. Um, one thing that I've noticed is that I've there are two kinds of grandiosity that I feel, um, and they both have this sort of fantasizing aspect to them. But one of the when I'm say running in the gym or whatever, and I just feel amazing and happy, and I see all these. It's kind of like any barriers to my um, emotionality drop away, and I just see my emotions taking all these beautiful shapes in my head. But the other form involves um, pumping myself up when I'm not feeling that good. And it um, it's a second form that tends to... There's always some implied audience there that I really wish uh, wasn't there. And um, I'd kind of... This wasn't so much of a big thing for me until... Um, until a couple of years ago when I, like, I thought of this as a habit to sort of minimize over time. But then I read The Fountainhead and uh, uh, it went, I was like, oh, here's permission. <laughs> here's permission to dream big. And uh, you go, I basically went into overdrive with this. And uh, yeah, I've experienced a lot of ups and downs as a result. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are with a more healthy approach to all of that. Yeah, let, let me start with a useless metaphor. Uh, and hopefully that will help frame. So I sort of view self-esteem like uh, a ball floating on the water, like a, a ball that has some air in it, obviously, right? And so self-esteem to me is like, and there are waves in life, right? So your ball on, on still, like on a swimming pool, the, 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 the ball is going to float pretty much, right? But if you put the ball in the ocean, right, there's going to be times where it gets swamped by a wave and it's going to be underwater, but it's going to bounce back up, you know, to, to the surface, right? And so that to me is self-esteem. It doesn't mean that you're never underwater. It just means that you have a kind of buoyancy. And, you know, I have my stresses and trials and tribulations in my life, and I sort of feel down or frightened or anxious or whatever. And then, you know, but it, I, I sort of write myself. The wave passes, and I sort of pop up and, you know, all of that, bask in the sunshine again. And, and that to me is sort of similar to self-esteem. People think that you can sort of float above the waves. I think that's nonsense. I don't think that's reasonable or rational. Right, that you can be, be all Zen and not be bothered by anything. I think that's crazy. I mean, it, that just means you're not living, you're not engaged in life. You're just not in the water. And so, uh, so yeah, you, you're in the water. There are waves, and some waves are of other people's making, and some waves are accidental, and some of your own. But there are waves. Anytime you try and do anything, right? What's that famous line? I think from, uh, particularly if you try and do anything important or virtuous in the world, right? That pisses off a lot of bad people. And uh, I, I take great comfort in in Winston Churchill's statement. Uh, uh, you have enemies. Good. That means you have stood up for something sometime in your life. Uh, and so I sort of view self-esteem that way. Now, on the other hand, if you take a ball and you know, think of taking a balloon and holding it underwater, you know, what happens when you let it go? It comes up with a big rush. With a big rush, right? Uh, it does. It's not stable. Now, of course, it will stabilize. So that's not the best metaphor from that standpoint. But it is... Um, uh, it is something that if, if, if something is artificially down or something is held down, then, right, so you, you think of like kids who, uh, they come from really restrictive households and then they go to college and they live uh, like in a frat house or they live on campus or whatever, right? Well, yeah. they go nuts, right? Because they've been held underwater so long that they, they don't have a stable relationship to the surface. They just go bursting through and go up into the sky without restraint. I mean, everybody was always surprised <laughs> when I went to college. I'd spent a year and a half working as a gold panner and prospector up north. I was damn ready to get my learn on, right? So I went to college and I was, uh, uh, I was doing uh, uh, essays within the first week or two of going there and people wanted to go out drinking and I'm like, hey, I'll come out and have a drink or two and I sure love to dance, but I'm not going to get drunk. 
uh, because I'm here to learn and this I'm paying a lot of money to be here and uh, I, you know I don't have any parents paying for things uh, so but but so you think of people who have um, you know or this happens in the gay community right somebody who's been really closeted uh, you know, they, they go down to the gay district and it's like, holy crap, <laughs> who, who let the demon of, in, of infinite sexuality out, right? And so, uh, so to me, grandiosity is like that balloon bursting through the surface because it's been held down. Uh, it's not stable yet, and it does go too high, and it does make its own waves, so to speak. Uh, just, I mean, does that metaphor help? I know that doesn't answer anything, but does it give us sort of a framework for thinking about it? It does. Um, I guess um, what I'm... What I'm really uh, okay. There's this. It, it's just. It's the. Um, there's something about it that still makes me feel like it's a, a possibly a dangerous habit to go and just oh, it is. strengthen it. Is. If that makes sense. So yeah, it is. And let me give you sort of my uh, the way that I train grandiosity, and uh, uh, I have to watch it. I I know that I have very big ambitions. Uh, I don't want to be a good parent. I want to be the best parent, not best to like other people. I just want to be the very best parent that I can be. Uh, and I want to be a great husband, and I want to be a great communicator in the realm of philosophy. And so, I mean, I have very high ambitions. But I'll tell you how you deal with grandiosity, in my opinion. You privatize it. And what I mean by that is, do you know how government workers, they can do all this shit, and they never face any consequences for their actions, right? So if, if some government program doesn't work, nobody has to pay, right, personally. Mm. So they can say any kind of shit that they want, uh, and uh, you know, like the the failed war on drugs. People, you know, in the in the government, they can say, "Well, I'm uh, I'm for the war on drugs." Well, so what? You know, it's like you don't pay uh, personally if uh, you know, and and where people do pay personally, they tend to change their mind, right? So Harry Brown reported once that there was this U.S. government official, I think a politician, who was you know very much for you know, three strikes and you're out and zero tolerance for drug abuse and so on. And then his own kid got caught with heroin or, or with cocaine or something. And suddenly he's all making calls to the DA's office to get him into rehab. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's just so predictable, right? Where, where the consequences don't accrue to the individual, they can just posture and they can make all of these empty words and empty promises and empty phases, you know? Uh, because, mm. you know, I mean, George Bush doesn't go and invade Iraq or Afghanistan, so he can say whatever the hell he wants. He can go speak from a megaphone and sound all kinds of tough. It doesn't accrue to him personally. The bill, the trillion-dollar bill, doesn't get sent to his house, right? So when I look at my own emotions, what I always try to do is to give them consequences, right? So if you say to yourself, uh, I don't know, give me a grandiose dream that you have. Um build a city with a uh, unique design style. Sorry, build a what? City. Build a city. Okay, so build a city with a unique design style. Fantastic. Okay, so I say to myself, if those fantasies keep coming back, you say, okay, well, what are the consequences to this fantasy? Am I going to do it? Right? And if it mm. keeps coming back to me, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to start that design. I'm going to pull out my Lego or my AutoCAD. I don't know what the hell you people use <laughs> to design stuff, yeah. but I'm going, to, I'm going to pull this stuff out. I'm going to start doing it, and maybe I'll write a book about my idea of the perfect city, and I'll get involved in the Venus Project or whatever, right? <laughs> right but, but write a book, start a movement, get it going, make, make it happen, because then your, your, your dreams have consequences, which means they get privatized, which means that they have to put up or shut up, and I found no better way to deal with my own grandiosity than to give it consequences, to make it 
sweat to make it work? That's actually, I, I'm really responding to that. So you're basically um, saying no grandiosity unless you're going to do something about it. You know, it's like, uh, it's, it's like, well, no, I mean, you're still going to have the grandiosity, but it's like, put up or shut up. Like, you know, you have this friend, uh, like you go to karaoke or whatever, and he's like, oh, you suck as a singer. I'm a way better singer than you are. I could like, I could do Josh Groban and Freddie Mercury and Sting and uh, Pavarotti and Enrico Caruso all rolled into one. And if you keep saying this and keep saying this, at some point, it's like, okay, here's the fucking microphone, right? <laughs> you know, mm. like, show me, right? Like, I think, I don't know if you ever watch like American Idol or those kinds of things, but, uh, but if you ever do, part of you, part of, cause I love to sing and I love to perform, right? And, and part of me is like, give me that mic, right? But, uh, mm. you know, I've recorded myself. I know how I sound, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, do it. If someone thinks they're really, you know, oh, those guys suck. It's like, well, go cut an album. You know, it doesn't cost much at all to do it. Go get a karaoke machine and and sing into it. It's going to cost you like 500 bucks start to finish. Uh, and then give the album to your friends and see if they'll like to play it in their car. To an extent, I've like had maybe, uh, I spent maybe a couple of hours over the last two years doing something to that effect. So I really could do more in that aspect with like drawing it and mapping out the designs yeah, and do so on. Do um, yeah, you know, there's, right. no, there's no cure for fantasy like reality. There is no cure for fantasy like reality, right? So I was like, oh, you know, I think I've got really important things to say to the world. And that keeps recurring to me. And before I podcasted, before I had Free Domain Radio long, long ago, in my car, I'd practice speeches. Because I was like, you oh, have I got, you know, I, I, like long, long before I ever had any place to talk about or to any venue, I was practicing speeches off and on for years. When I was commuting long before, so I didn't just start free domain radio like, hey, I open my mouth and all the words come out. I mean, I've been practicing this shit for years. I was writing, I was, I was, and there was no outlet, right? I was writing, I was practicing speeches, I was doing all this kind of stuff. I mean, this, this doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And so I always sort of felt that I had this stuff to offer, I had this value to offer. And so then, you know, when it's like, okay, so I think I may have enough money to, to at least start to do this. Well, do it. You know, you've thought for years you could do it, so do it. And that's great. And that has really cured me of grandiosity is realizing what a challenge it really is. And that I, you know, some of my ambitions uh, have been true. Uh, I have been very pleased with the way it's worked out. Uh, some of them I have still yet to realize. I still want to give a complete, you know, uh, fist pump and cling on brain forehead vein pumping a bond burner of a speech but i think that will come over time uh so you know i've still got a ways to go but uh you know there's nothing that cures uh ambition or grandiosity like putting the spinning wheels on the road and seeing how fast it goes is there anything that you've managed to do to avoid the whole sort of peter keating imagining an audience all the time phenomena <laughs> well you're again you're talking to a guy on a sunday show about how to avoid thinking you have an audience but uh but yeah no look that is a that is a very very big problem and and i don't think it should be cured completely i think it would be insane to cure it completely because we do have an audience right so if you're on a first date with someone uh you have an audience and it seems unlikely to me that you're going to act exactly the same way as you are after you've had a relationship for 10 years Mm. Right. When you when you go for a job interview, you have an audience and you're going to behave differently than otherwise. And if you're singing in the shower versus singing on a stage in front of 10,000 people. Right. You you have an audience. OK. Right. I, I don't imagine that, uh, you know, Mick Jagger puffs out his lips and struts and all around his shower if he's singing in the shower. No, but he doesn't. Also, we don't want to see him 
rubbing himself down with Irish soap and singing on a stage, right? So there yeah. is an audience, and there are times where an audience is important. Now, so, so I don't think it's good to get rid of completely. I think that would be unhealthy and a rejection of a sort of important social reality, if that makes any sense. Sure, I can see that. So, so that's at one. Uh, but at the other extreme is, is, you know, we feel that we're playing to an invisible gallery all the time. And, you know, of course, Ayn Rand did this with great effect. But you can go all the way back to um, Oscar Wilde's stories where he's talking about a woman who's a hysteric, who's, um, you know, continually doing these scenes of gross, inept tragedy as if she's playing to some, uh, some invisible audience and <laughs> trying to get an Oscar. Uh, and uh, I've, I've mentioned this before a long time ago, but the book that I would recommend for this uh, which really helped me with this, is a book called The Magus, M-A-G-U-S, by John Fowles. Uh, he's the guy who wrote The French Lieutenant's Woman and The Maggot and some other books. I'm not a big fan of his other books, but this is a uh, a guy who is going through this problem of feeling that everything in his life is being evaluated and he's getting good and bad points for good and bad behavior. And you see this, of course, with people who are uh, playing playing tennis, right? Playing t uh, Any game, or playing tennis, because right? I'm a tennis player, right? So, you know, you... Uh, you hit a good shot and you feel like good and you see people i don't do this as much anymore but you see people who hit a bad shot and they're like ah oh, damn it you suck or something like that well that's the yeah, external yeah. judge in their head who's like saying good points for good or bad behavior and but but the other thing is too is that to you can't be indifferent to making a good or bad shot i mean that's insane as well right i i'm so zen that i'm just at one with hitting the ball and i don't care if it goes and kills a pigeon or lands perfectly i mean of course we care i mean you can't play a sport and not care about excellence, right? Well, you can't be a pianist I... and not you can't be a pianist and not care about hitting the wrong key. Like uh, if you've ever seen uh, Phil Collins at uh, Live Aid, uh, he's doing Against All Odds. I mean, he butchers he he messes up the intro, and you can see him go, "God, what an idiot!" And then he starts all over again, right? And uh, Sting was uh, when I saw him last, he had um, his lyrics were on a uh, a music stand in front of him because he recently has been forgetting lyrics because you know he's. I don't know, getting up there or whatever, right? So, uh, but you can't be indifferent to that kind of stuff. Uh, you just can't. And so I think pretending that there's no audience, pretending that the outcome doesn't matter is not healthy. What we want to have is a more healthy and positive relationship with that. But you can't have a preference without simultaneous disappointment. You can't want to ask someone out and then simultaneously not care whether they say yes or no. That's just not re not rational. Desire is the uh, you know the the stairway to desire has within it the, the innately the trapdoor of of disappointment, uh, right? So so that is just natural. I don't think you can get rid of and and I mean understand that that Howard Rourke is insane and John Galt is insane and they're not meant to be human beings. I and mean, Ayn Rand would be the first one to say that, right? They have no families. I mean, can you imagine uh, John Galt going to for dinner with his uh, with his mom and in laws? I mean, it would be a different kind of person. You, Right? You, you wouldn't, and there's a reason why there's no families. Right? Ayn Rand is the ultimate Defu novelist, right? All of her, all of her heroes have no families whatsoever. And, uh, and there's, I that's think an I've important compared reality. myself to, oh, sorry. I'm sorry, go ahead. I think I've tried to compare myself to, or not compare myself, but to try and aim for that as a standard. So where I fell short and then felt, yeah, not good and enough. And Ayn Rand herself, Ayn Rand herself fell woefully short of that. I mean, her reactions to the popular reception of, or to the critical reception of Atlas Shrugged, was to never write another damn piece of fiction for as long as she lived. Yeah, yeah. Right? And she refused to go to parties where the, some of her most vocal critics were. And look, I can understand that. I don't blame her for anything like that. But she sure as hell wasn't indifferent to, uh, to what happened 
Uh, and she mm. was, uh, you know, she, she didn't live up to her own standards of truth uh, with regard to lying to everyone about her affair with Brandon. She didn't live up to her own standards of integrity. She didn't live up to her own standards of, uh, of virtue uh, for attacking that which was real in others when he rejected her. So, I mean, I, I try not to look at fictional characters. I try to look at real people for my standards. Because fictional characters are very easy uh, to, to make up, right? They're very easy. You know, if I was really interested in fictional characters, I would assume that, that almost all cops are noble heroes and pursuer, pursuers of justice and uh, forgivers of the innocent and uh, almost never make any mistakes, right? Because those are all the fictional characters we see on, on television. Uh, when you see movies about the military, how heroic generally are the military men portrayed? And if they're not heroic, uh, it's usually the fault of some, someone else, like their civilian commanders who put them in Vietnam or whatever. But uh, it's really important to stay. Fiction is so incredibly easy to manipulate. Fiction is not flesh and blood. Fiction is not reality. Fiction is fantasy. And there's nothing wrong with it. I think fiction is great. But for heaven's sakes, don't imbibe the gaseous emptiness of invented characters and think that there's anything human in there for you to emulate. If you want to look at, at the best that people can do, and if you're a fan of Ayn Rand, you know, go read um, Ayn Rand and the World She Made by, by the woman who recently put out a biography or Ayn Rand, Rand and the American Goddess of the Market I think it was Ayn Rand and the American Right go read um, uh, A Sense of Life or I think there was a, a video of hers a, a documentary made of hers so go read uh, Barbara Brandon's book or, about her and Nathaniel Brandon's recollections I mean she was a powerful woman she was a lion of reason she was very passionate but she did not come close in many ways in some ways she did but in many ways she did not come close to achieving her own ideals. And that's not the end of the world. It's just that she didn't seem to ever admit it. That's, that's, that's the biggest failure. It's not the failure to, to reach your own ideals, but to admit when you don't, right? That's, that's the biggest failure. And so this is not to slag Ayn Rand, who remains a, you know, a very powerful heroine for me, but don't try and crawl into a books. They're two-dimensional, they're flat, and uh, they have uh, very uh, papery aftertastes, and you get cuts. Uh, so don't crawl into a book and think that you can emulate anything that's real or living. Uh, life is much more ambivalent and complicated than uh, than the books are. And the books are great to have it as, as an ideal, like I should care less what other people think. But um, uh, you can't escape it. You shouldn't try to escape it completely. I think that would be psychotic. Uh, but you can try and work to minimize the degree to which our lives are run by the opinions of others. You know, the first thing that I try to do uh, when I come across somebody's opinion to me is not evaluate their opinion of me, but to evaluate their opinion of themselves, to evaluate their behavior. Right? So if a virtuous man calls me a monster, that is very serious to me. Right? But if somebody calls me a monster, or I don't know, whatever people call me, if somebody calls me something bad, uh, the first thing I do is look at that person's life. You know, well, how they're doing, how successful are they, what right gives, do they have? Right? So uh, if, if a fat person calls me fat and I'm much thinner than the fat person, I, I don't think that it has anything to do with me, if that makes any sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I've been applying that approach with criticism for a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Look at the person. Don't look at the words. The, the words are used to distract you from the person. The words are used so that you look at the wound in yourself rather than not even the knife that's in the other person's hand, but the person themselves, right? So someone comes rushing at you and they're trying to activate your fight or flight response so that you don't coherently and empirically evaluate the situation. They're trying to activate your fight or flight so that you don't stop and reason about things, right? So when somebody insults you, they're trying to make you feel so bad that they activate your fight or flight and you can't look at things rationally. And then they have control over you because they've just shut down your neofrontal cortex. They've tickled up your, hyper, your, your amygdala and they're in control of you. Uh, don't surrender that control. Yeah. Oh, I hate that feeling too. So yeah, yeah, you fight back. You fight back and you say, okay, well, who is talking about, like, who's talking trash about me? What's their life like? How are they doing? How are they doing? 
How's their love life? How's their family life? Do they even know what, stuff, what the words mean? Yeah, I mean, and and why? Why are they bothering to to insult me? I mean, this is very important stuff. To like, like you, you need to stay. You need to hang on to your neofrontal cortex. You know, with two hands if you have to, right? With with gritted teeth, you need to you know put a a, a lasso on it with a, a flotation device so that it doesn't get dragged down by the undercurrents of history. You need to hang on to your rational evaluation, and it can be really a tough to do because we all have that emotional reaction, that sinking feeling that oh my god, right? But then you got to shake that off to some degree at least, and say, okay, well, what's really going on here? What's really happening here? You know, is the, uh, is the smoker calling me unhealthy? Well, that clearly has nothing to do with me. Mm. Well, like, look, Steph, this, and none of this was the answer I expected, so thank you very much. That, uh, that's uh, yeah, a big relief. Yeah, well, listen, if it was the answer you expected, there'd be no point calling in, right? So... Right. So yeah, and, and be gentle with yourself and recognize that we are we are all trained to be fearful of the opinions of others, right? You understand, this is how we are fundamentally kept in line as tax livestock, is that we're terrified of the opinion of others. If no one can walk down school with, with people laughing behind their back and, and not feel terrible, right? The, the cliques, the viciousness, the infighting, the bullying, the, the ostracism, the attacks, the rejections, now the cyberbullying, all of this stuff we're trained to do. We're trained to do it. We're trained to do it in school. We're trained to do it in, in, in church. We're trained often, not always, but we're trained to do it in families, uh, right? And we, we, it's collective punishment that causes us, right? So if everyone gets punished, then the brothers and sisters all turn on each other when someone does something wrong. And we're all trained for this. And we're put in these ridiculous situations where we're age segregated in school, not ability segregated, which is the only thing that makes any kind of sense, or not segregated at all, but allowed to learn at our own pace, hopefully with our own families in the future. But we're all attacked. We're all attacked horizontally all the time. And all of these attacks are continually provoked and are continually encouraged, often in very subtle ways, by people in power, right? So public humiliation, uh, this is something that teachers certainly used to do when I was a kid. And they would invite other kids in very subtle ways to laugh at you and to, to, to attack you and to ostracize you. Uh, you know, people say, well, teachers are against bullying. Oh, my God. I mean, let's not even get into that topic because it's too big. No, they don't do but anything regular. about it. Well, no, they encourage it. <laughs> they encourage it. Uh, you try, try criticizing a teacher on rational grounds. Uh, he will make fun of you and invite the other students to laugh at you. That's almost inevitable. And so everyone understands oh, yeah, yeah. that, right? That, uh, you know, bring up that taxation is forced when you're in grade eight. Bring up that the teacher's salary is paid for through violence. Uh, see how they're going to do. See how they're going to react to you. Um, are they going to just roll their eyes at you and say, I don't know where you're getting this kind of crazy shit from. Maybe you should read a little less stuff on the internet and a little bit more in your textbook. Ha, ha, ha. Everyone laughs at you, right? So, um, uh, or they just pretend that, you know, this is all nonsense that you're bringing up. Or they roll their eyes or they, you know, they, they, they sigh or, you know, they, they, portray that you're the one with some sort of yeah that you're the one with some sort of weird problem and they're just trying to get on with the lesson or they imply that you're wasting everyone's time and that this isn't going to be on the test so maybe we should get back to what everyone else wants so that they pit you against everyone else and that everyone else is going to somehow suffer or pay in some way because they'll be less prepared for the exam I mean I'm just off the top of my yeah. head this is just one tenth of one percent of all of the manipulative tricks that I, I remember. remember all of this. yeah no go ahead Oh, no, yeah, I just remember hearing all those kinds of things, definitely, um, uh, in school. Um, it, one thing I've gotten, though, just thinking overall, everything, is um, how absurd it is to think of designing any piece of architecture and taking it outside of my head if I'm not going to show it to anyone. <laughs> if I don't care what anyone thinks, then why build it? Why even design it? Why make it? 
So of course there should well, be you, some. No, you can do it for practice. Right? No, you can do it. Look, you can do it for practice. I mean, um, there are videos, and again, sorry to sound like a, a queen geek, but there are videos on the internet of a queen doing sound checks before their uh, shows. And I think it's kind of cool because it's kind of cool to hear Freddie do his scales and, and uh, Brian play his guitar and all that. It's kind of cool to hear this kind of stuff if you're a real fan. It's ridiculous to, that I do it, but uh, I think I've spent about 15 minutes listening to these uh, over the course of my life. But but they're not, they weren't for anyone to hear. Right? They're just warm up and practice and scales and so on. And I will sometimes, and sometimes more than sometimes, do practice podcasts, which I never release or release just to a few people to say, well, what do you think? Uh, so I think that's, and I've written books that I'm never going to publish, uh, and so I think that's all perfectly fine for practice. But with the goal of getting better at something. Yeah, but it's with the goal of, of getting good at something so that you can show, right? So the reason that the tennis player practices for four hours a day, nobody comes to watch the practice, or very few people do, but so that he can get good enough that people will come to watch him, right? So it still has an end called an audience. But uh, yeah, so I just wanted to point out that, that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with being afraid uh, uh, of other people and afraid of their opinions and desirous of, of being in their good books because we're all trained for that. Uh, and it's unfortunate that we're trained that way, but that's what we all inherit, almost all of us anyway. And uh, it seems to cut across class lines and political lines. It's just a constant. Uh, it certainly happens in private school. I mean, I was uh, accused of dishonoring the name of the school, uh, which by which implication everybody else was dishonored and they were all going to turn on me. I mean, this is this is when I was six years old, for Christ's sake. So... <laughs> This is this is all stuff that that we're raised with, and we 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 is inculcated within us. So you know, hope for sakes, don't feel bad. It's like feeling bad for being able to speak English. Well, that's just the language you were taught, and this language of being fearful of others and desirous of their good, of of the security and safety of the herd. I mean, that's a story as old as mankind. So you're not wrestling with any defect. You know, hopefully we're going to have an improvement, but you're not wrestling with any innate defect yourself. This is common to all of us. Even those of us who have, you know, hopefully a greater sense of, of integrity and, and philosophy and desire to change things, I still struggle with it. And so, yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard. So I hope that you'll be gentle with yourself about that. That's sort of really all I'm saying. Yeah, well, uh, well thank you for that. I definitely appreciate that. Um, yeah, thanks, Steph. You're very welcome, man. Great, great question. And I uh, really appreciate you bringing that up. And uh, I think we have time for one more. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimbo, James, E. James. All right, we're going to give this guy another shot. Oh, Mr. Echo. I think it's somebody else. Hello. Hopefully. Hello? I, Hi, how's it going? Okay, everything worked on that now. Right, good, good, good. Should I, should I uh, skip the fawning preamble? Yeah, 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 skip the fawning preamble. I'll just assume that uh, you, like my, uh, you like the cut of my jib, so uh, let's, uh, let's go on with the question. <laughs> Okay, sorry, you're cutting out a little bit. Let me just make sure I understand what you're saying. Sorry, sorry about this. You're you're cutting out quite a bit. I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. So, you have a question about the the ethics or universal value of people who are landlords owning thirty or forty houses relative to people who homestead those houses, like who would just sort of move in and improve them or or put furniture in or or whatever. Is that right? Right, right. No, I think that's a great question, and I do get this. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I. I'd give you more time, but it's a little harder for to hear you. So let me let me just give a, an answer, and at least my answer, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense. I'm sorry we can't have uh, more of a back and forth, but you're cutting out a bit. So let, let's take the example of a, a landlord who owns 30 or 40 houses. Well, uh, we can assume that, uh, uh, I think we can reasonably assume that those 30 or 4 houses only exist because the landlord was willing to buy them, 
right? So what I mean by that is uh, people build houses because someone's going to buy them because nobody's going to build a house that no one's going to buy unless he's living in the woods, like doing it for himself and building his own house. So people who build houses build houses so that people will buy them. Now, most builders, and I know this from my own experience of buying a house, most builders want to get paid long before the house goes up, right? So I think we bought our house 18 months, I think, before it was even up. And then it took a little while before it was ready to, to be ready to move into it. So, and because they have their, they have to pay their people and they don't want to wait for a couple of years to get paid. So, uh, so a landlord is someone who has enough money that he's going to pay for 30 or four houses, 30 or 40 houses to be built. And those 34, uh, 30 or 40 houses really only exist because the landlord is going to uh, pay for them. We can assume, right? Because if, uh, if individuals were going to buy them, then they would sell to an individual or they exist uh, cheaper because the landlord is buying them in bulk. Right, so it's easier to sell forty houses to one person than it is to sell forty houses to forty families, right? Because for obvious reasons, I don't have to talk about, right? So, so the, the houses are either cheaper than they would have been otherwise, or they only exist because landlord has bought them, and so the landlord, of course, has taken his prior productivity, assuming he's not a thief or a government agency. Sorry, but I repeat myself. But he's going to take his prior value, his prior economic value in the form of capital and invest it in these houses, which eliminates his value in other areas. So he's not putting it in the stock market. He's not buying gold. He's not uh, renting porn. He's not doing whatever you can do with that's a lot of porn, I guess. But, but he's not doing other stuff with his money. And so uh, the houses are either much cheaper or they only exist because of this landlord. So other people can't come in and homestead them because if they only exist because the landlord bought them, then they're stealing. And if they're much cheaper because the landlord bought them, then they should pay fair market value, which is cheaper than if they'd paid for it themselves, we would assume, right? So, uh, so, so the landlord is bringing value to the equation, and the landlord is, uh, is bringing efficiency to the, to the equation. And the same thing is true of land, of course. The same thing is true of, of farms, right? So if someone uh, goes and, like if I have, I don't know, a million dollars, and uh, I go and buy some land, I'm buying that land with the intention of doing something with it at some point or you know maybe i just want to preserve the tree frogs on it or something but even that's of value to me and so whatever value is there whether it's a farm or the tree frogs or houses or a playpen or play park or whatever that value is only there because i have diverted my capital away from all other possible uses in order to buy the land and so that's there and it wouldn't be there otherwise so if anyone takes it they're taking what wouldn't have been there otherwise and uh, therefore, uh, that to me is, is wrong. And I, I'm sorry if that didn't come close to answering your question, but that's my first sort of thought about what you're talking about. Sure. I think that everything you said applies perfectly to uh, manufactured goods. The problem um, I'm having with it is uh, when it comes to land, because land is something that is not a fair, like effective labor. It has a... Uh, you have to justify your being able to occupy it, whether it's a house or a house or... But sorry, sorry, um, you, sorry. Let me make sure I understand this. So you're saying like a house is built, but land is not built. Land is just there. Is that right? Yeah, we have some moral justification of. No, but uh, but hang on. Sorry, sorry. Just one sec. What about um, what about fish in the ocean? Nobody builds those fish, right? But somebody has to catch them and bring them to land. Otherwise, the, you know, how much are you going to pay me for a shark out in the middle of the Atlantic? Well, not much, because you know you don't know where it is. You can't do anything with it. Uh, so. Um, so uh, the fact that something is 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 made and doesn't pre-exist, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me to alter anything about property rights. The difference is, can something of value be extracted from the 
the whatever it is, whether it's so. So, for instance, if if uh, if I catch a fish, then you can eat the fish or you can put it in your aquarium or you can mount it on a wall or do whatever. Right. Uh, and so the fact that I didn't make the fish, but instead have put labor in to make it something of value. In other words, it's accessible uh, is good. Right. So I may not have made the land, but if I plant crops and crops get grown on the land, which you can eat, it's exactly the same to me as invest, like investing the labor to grow the crops that you can eat is exactly the same as investing the labor to catch the fish so that you can eat it. Uh, it's still mixing a value of labor to produce something that is of value to others. And if it's tree frogs that you want to go and see, well, I built the land and enclosed the tree frogs so you go and see them. That's obviously, it doesn't have to be something that you consume. It can be something you just look at. But uh, I think that's, uh, that, that, does that help at all? I'm sort of, my question that, I have actually uh, uh, several questions in this area, of course, going back to the blogging environment, so we don't have too much time, which is unfortunate. Um, but the problem is, let's, let's take the state as an example. Um, were, let's say the government of Canada to have legitimately bought all of the land uh, oh, wait, 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 okay, okay, hang on. Let's just say up is down, black and white, and murder is good. Where do we go from here, right? No, no, no. Let's say the balsa no, can hold up an airplane. How are we going to build this bridge? But let's say, no, no, no. We can't, we can't start from there, right? Okay, okay. okay. Then let's say, um, I, let's say my mother rents a house from someone and pays rent. I'm born in the house, and my mother has a house, and the mom comes to collect rent for me, and I and I would use the arguments that I could possibly. Okay, sorry, sorry. Let me go back. Let me get sorry. Let me go back. I'm sorry, you're cutting out quite a bit. So let me just go back to to your mom, right? Because the important thing when you're looking at renting is not what your mom is paying, but what your mom is saving, right? So if um, uh, if you rent a house for fifteen hundred dollars a month that costs three hundred thousand dollars. What your mom is paying is not the important part of the equation. That's not what makes it renting, right? Because you can have a mortgage for $1,500 a month and you're paying the same amount to someone, right? But the difference is not what you're paying. The difference is what you're saving. That's the difference between renting and ownership. So the difference is that your mom doesn't have to put up $100,000 to buy the house, right? That's, that's the difference. Or she also doesn't have to go into a 20-year mortgage but she can have a year's lease or six months lease, so she has much more options to get out of it. She doesn't have to put up a collateral. She doesn't have to put up a quarter century of time. She doesn't, like, she has much more flexibility. So it's not what your mom is paying. It's what she's saving, which is the capital for the down payment and the flexibility to not get involved in a multi-decade contract. It's what she's saving that makes the difference, and that's why you don't have property rights for it. The, the underlying... Um... Would you, what do you think about this idea of homesteading as, as a dynamic process? I mean, if you buy land, you own it for forever. Because if the original homesteading principle is developed on farmland, it's very clear that you couldn't own land forever um, if you stop having a relationship with the land personally. Right. So the idea is that uh, if, you, uh, if you enclose a piece of land and then you don't use it for 20 years, do you still get to use it? Well, uh, I, think that, I think that the free market takes care of that fundamentally. Uh, and I don't think we need any moral rules about it. I think we just need economic reality. So uh, let's say, uh, let's just take a silly example. So let's say that they open up half of, of Central Park for buying, and you can boom buy it. And let's say that I go put a million dollars down to get half an acre in Central Park. It probably would be more than that, but let's just say, right? Okay. And it's enough to build a really nice house. But let's say I don't do anything with it. 
let's say I don't do anything with it. Uh, and let's say that 20 years go by. And it is, it is the last piece of half acre land in New York that is available, right? How much do you think it's going to be going for? Quite a lot, of course. A hell of a lot more than what I paid for it, right? Because when I paid for it, there was a lot of other land available because it just opened up half a central park. And so by the time, so if, if I have a piece of property and I leave it unused, there's really only one of two possibilities. Either nobody wants it, right? Because maybe I bought, I don't know, a, a, a piece of horizontal sheer rock on the side of some mountain in the middle of nowhere, or I bought, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a square inch somewhere in Antarctica that nobody wants, right? In which case, me not using it is irrelevant because nobody's going to use it, right? And of course, I'm never even going to buy it, right? Nobody does that sort of stuff. But let's just say, right? So then it doesn't matter. But the second thing is, let's say I buy some, some land that has value and I don't do anything with it. Well, it has value, which means that people are going to want it, which means they're going to bid for it, which means that at some point, I or my kids are going to sell it because it's just worth so much that people sell that people sell stuff that's worth a lot, right? I mean, if you have, I mean, think of this, right? So think of um, uh, jewelry uh, that comes down from a mother and she has, she has two sons, right? And she dies and she leaves all of her jewelry to her sons. She has no daughters, right? Well, what are her sons going to do with it? Well, they may keep, keep a couple of pieces of it for sentimental reasons, but for the most part, they're going to sell it, right? Because they don't want it. They're boys, right? They don't want her necklaces and her earrings and all that, right? Hmm. So, so that would be my answer, that the free market, through bidding up the value of unused but potential um, uh, uh, land, is going to continually move it away from unproductive hands into productive hands, because productive hands can bid more for it than unproductive hands, and eventually, almost always, and it's usually sooner rather than later, you know, rational self-interest or greed, <laughs> to use another phrase, will we'll take that over. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it, makes, uh, it makes some sense. Um... I suppose I am working back. I have a, a pragmatic uh, reason to not like landlords own like before. I mean, I, I own real estate. I because I think I feel like it's a bubble. And I'm not, I'm not real estate. I'm not even rich at all. Um, I'm with you on everything except for uh, real estate. Like my grandparents in Iran had uh, they owned a lot of houses and they them for like, a generation and left Iran and they went house to house and so uh, I own it and it's now. I raised my family here and I live here now. And in a way, I do totally sympathize with them because relationship with land uh, is something that's dynamic and can't be bothersome. You can't buy or sell relationships. But I, I feel in a, in a very fundamental way that, uh, 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 that if you are actively using yourself, that courts shouldn't. In a, in a free world, uphold your right to continue using it, uh, to continue just No, 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 that's, that's not true. Look, um, look, I, look I, uh, sorry to interrupt practice, you, but you're cutting out yeah. quite a bit. That's, that's just not, that can't be valid. That can't be valid because, uh, you know, I, when I go to do a speech, sometimes I'll rent a car, and I'm the one who's actively using that car, but I damn well have to give it back. And why do I have to give it back? Well, the rental cost of a car is usually more than the car payments, but the reason I, I can't give it back is because I haven't had to drop down $10,000 and, and get involved in a four-year purchase plan uh, for a car, right? So the fact that I'm, I'm the one actively using the car doesn't mean that I own it in perpetuity because, because it's, a, it's a simply a matter of justice. It's simply a matter of fairness, right? So the reason that renters don't get to keep the house is because they didn't have to tie up 
you know, significant amounts of money as a down payment, and they didn't have to uh, to pay off the house over 20 years, and they didn't have to worry about um, uh, variations in interest rates, and they didn't have to uh, maintain it, and they didn't have to invest in it, and they didn't have to, you know, nobody who rents a house uh, is is going to fix the roof, right? Somebody else is going to fix it. They've 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 saved so much money by renting rather than buying. And I say this because I mean I grew up in rented apartments my whole life. I didn't own any property till I was in my 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 late thirties, and so it's it's simply unfair. Like when you when you rent, if if you your toilet gets stuck, you call the landlord and he comes and does it for you. Well, no such person in the house, so you got to pay for it yourself. So a renter, uh, even though he's, he or she is using it, they haven't had to tie up capital, they haven't had to get involved in long contracts, and they've had other people handle the maintenance. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to change the oil on the car I'm renting for a week, but I'm going to change it on my own car. Uh, so it's just it's not fair to people who own to extend the same privileges to people who rent because there's so much uh, savings and so much less uh, involvement, so much less stickiness in renting that it would just be unfair to all the buyers to give the same rights to the renters. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. I, I had a point where I could make a decision between renting and owning, um, and I sold my place went to renting because there's a there's a lot of advantage to it. What I'm talking about is like a more basic principle. I think land is an exception. I think land is very different than a car or a thing um, because the moral the moral reason that we get private property at all comes from this idea of homesteading, which is like the, the essence of it. Um, so I know the practicality, but the, the essential moral principle of being able to own any period is homesteading, and I'm just wondering if there's an option for that to be a dynamic process. I really no, like, see, you I, have one, I don't, you have a, look, I don't see, I don't see homesteading as different for land than it is. Sorry to interrupt. I don't see homesteading as different for land than it is for anything else. So when somebody sends me a donation, uh, I've homesteaded that money, right? That money is, is now mine. Uh, and what have they gotten? Well, stress, trials, tribulations, and problems, <laughs> because that's what philosophy delivers. Oh, right, and happiness, right? But so um, uh, when I when I eat uh, a banana, I've homesteaded it. I mean, I don't see like I now own it, and nobody's going to want it back in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, I, th th there's no fundamental difference uh, in land as there is in anything else whatsoever. Uh, when I air, when I breathe air in, I've homesteaded it. Uh, so um, uh, you know, when I when I rent a car, I have temporary homesteading. Right, and, and uh, you know, for for a variety of reasons we've talked about already, there's no fundamental difference between land and, and anything else in the world. Land is just stuff, uh, and and money is just stuff, and it represents stuff, uh, and a lamp and a bed. They're all just stuff, uh, and so there is no uh, there's no reason. Like UPB is a thing, right? UPB is a universal way of evaluating things. Ah, so sorry about that. Um, yeah, so I there is no you, you can't differentiate between a lamp and and a piece of land. Um, because, I mean, where would you differentiate it from? Let's say so there's a wooden lamp in my bedroom, uh, which came from, so we can say, well, I can own the wooden lamp. Well, well, where did the wooden lamp come from? It came from a tree, and the tree was grown on someone's land, right? So uh, everything does come back to the land uh, in many ways. Everything does come back to the sea in many ways. And so I, I don't think how you can own the effects of land and then differentiate those from land itself. So my argument would be that uh, you can't separate land from uh, from that now there are tons of historical examples where temporary ownership uh, or you know serfdom uh, is entirely unjust and immoral right so you've got slaves who are actually working the land uh who are banned from owning it 
and, and women who were banned from owning things and serfs who were banned from perpetual ownership of their land and all of that's you know immoral, but that's all statism and crap like that. But I think in a free market, uh, you can't just draw a line down and say, well, land is one kind of property and everything else is another kind of property. I mean, everything does come from the land at one time or another. And, uh, and nobody really cares about land fundamentally. They only care about the productive things that land can do whether that's just touristy consumption or building a house or, or planting trees and uh, getting lamps for philosophers' beds or whatever. Nobody cares about land. It's only the products. Like nobody cares about fish in the ocean. They care about fish on the shore or fish in an aquarium or whatever, right? And so I wouldn't say that there's any fundamental difference between uh, between land and everything else. I think we've got to have the same rule for everything. What 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 uh, which is beautiful uh, like there's islands off the coast of that river that you just look on they just have this that it's inherent value I'm so sorry listen let, let's try it again next week uh, just to finish this up uh, a we're out of time and B you're just cutting out to the point where I, can, I can't really hear what you're saying so I'm afraid that technology has kindly given me the last <laughs> word which is not to say that I'm right uh, this is just my argument uh, and I'm glad to have the chance to put it forward and I'm certainly happy to be corrected but uh, I will have to stop here I mean due respect for for the people's exhausted ears or whatever but uh, listen it's a great question uh, if uh, we'll, we'll try it again next week and see if the technology works any better I'd really like to continue this because it's a big question and I certainly don't claim to have any monopoly on on an answer but uh, yeah let's, let's give it another shot next week okay if you can call back in that would be great and thanks everyone so much uh, it was uh, it was a good week uh, it was a good week for me here uh, it's uh, it's been a great uh, a great month for Freedom Main Radio lots of outreach lots of uh, great interviews thanks so much to Karen uh, for coming on the show. It was really great. To Woody for coming on the show and talking about the death of the uh, the Liberty Dollar. It was really enjoyable. And uh, have yourselves an absolutely wonderful week. Freedomainradio.com forward slash donate. If you'd like to help out, uh, we should be switching over to the new website. And if you'd like to have a look, just shoot me a line and I can give you a link. And uh, it's uh, thanks everybody. Thanks, of course, James, every single week. Uh, James steps up magnificently and does a great job of hosting it. There's a uh, it may look smooth on the surface, but there's a lot of pedaling under the water. And thank you so much uh, to, uh, uh, to Phil and, uh, and Bill and everyone else who rhymes with still, uh, who's been helping out on the website. No more than helping out doing the website. I'm just <laughs> coming in occasionally to, to mention certain things. Uh, it's really looking great. And I really appreciate everyone's time and help and effort on that. And have yourselves a great, great, great week. Uh, we should be, I think, back to regular technical setup next week. So thanks, everyone. Have a great week. I'll talk to you soon.